I think founders and tech folks sometimes think that, all right, I've got this great product, I've got a bunch of users, I'm going to go into the enterprise, some head of sales is going to come in and take me through there, and this person on this white horse is just going to go get all of this. And yeah. it doesn't work that way. If anyone's starting a company or they're starting to get into some of these problems, if you can't sell this yourself, probably no one else is going to be able to. If I can't walk in and grab your budget as a CEO, even if I'm not technical or salesy, that's not an excuse because no one else is going to be able to do that. Some traction. You need some traction. Let's get some traction. Hey, what's up, innovators, entrepreneurs, visionaries, and disruptors? This is your Traction Podcast host, Lloyd Lobo. We're a community of over a hundred thousand people, just like yourself, on a mission to help you get the methods, the money, and the madness to explode your business growth, featuring stories and tactical advice straight from those who've done it before, like Shopify, Twilio, Asana, and many more. This episode is brought to you by Boast.ai. Each year, the U.S. and Canadian governments give out billions of dollars in R&D tax credits and innovation incentives to fund businesses like yours. But the application process is cumbersome, prone to frustrating audits, and receiving the money can take up to 16 months. Boast.ai gets you access to research and development, tax credits, and innovation funding opportunities without the headache and red tape. Join thousands of North American companies leveraging Boast AI software to maximize cashback. Check out boast.ai. This episode is also brought to you by Launch Academy, an international tech hub that provides mentorship, resources, network, and the environment for entrepreneurs to launch, fund, and grow their startups. Since 2012, Launch Academy has incubated over 6,000 entrepreneurs, of which 300 have grown their startups past Seed and Series A and have collectively raised over $1.2 billion in funding. To learn more about Launch Academy's programs, check out launchacademy.ca. Special thanks to our podcast partner, Content Allies, from podcast production and promotion, Content Allies helps B2B companies build revenue-generating podcasts. We recommend them to any B2B company that's looking to launch or streamline their podcast production. Learn more at contentallies.com. A lot of folks in the room will know of Qualtrics, and it's a huge success, but it's not a consumer brand like Dropbox or something. So tell us a little bit about the company, when you got started, how many employees you have today, where they're distributed, that kind of stuff. So cool. First, thanks for having me. This is great. It worked out well. I was in the city. So Qualtrics is something we started when I was a junior in college. I was in the basement of my parents' house, and... <laughs> We stayed there for five years. Our goal was to make sophisticated research simple. So my father's an academic scientist, he's a professor, and he was always fiddling around with technology. And we said, hey, look, could we develop a technology for research with a survey-based platform that we could launch to the world of academia? And he said, cool, let's go do this. I'll partner with you. I have no money to pay you, but no venture capital. So that's the only rule. So we stayed in the base. Did dads have scar tissue on venture capital or? Yeah, uh, yeah, he had a little bit in the past being an academic and they're great folks, but they're a little, they think a little differently about the world. So it was great. 
we targeted the academic world. We signed up 250 universities to start with, and we thought, hey, if we got every business school in the country using Qualtrics, then maybe the faculty would share it with their students, and hopefully someday that would carry on out into the corporate and the enterprise. What we didn't know at the time was that would actually be like the entire go-to-market uh, model for Qualtrics, because you can't really predict virality, but it actually started happening. So someone would leave Kellogg and go use us at Heineken or in this model. So that was a great model. And then about 2007, 2008, the downturn of the economy as a bootstrap company, we were in a basement making $100,000 a month. And my how father- How many companies do you have? How many employees do you have? In the we had about 25 people. 25 all in dad's yeah. basement. Yeah, in dad's basement. He didn't think we should move out. So you're doing a millionaire or 100K a month, and, right? uh, and we were profitable. It was great because we had to be profitable from the beginning, eat what you kill, which isn't very popular right now. He took a Fulbright to Moldova and he was a Fulbright scholar and was teaching. And so the second he left, I just moved out of the basement and said, we're going to go scale this thing. And when he gets back in 18 months, it's either going to be good. And then the downturn in the economy happened and our business took off. People in the enterprise who we'd been calling into, I remember calling into one major airline and they were like, hey, we said, hey, you got to power all your customer feedback on Qualtrics. And they're like, if our customers are unhappy, they'll just call us. Yeah. And three months, three years later, they're actually powering all their feedback on Qualtrics. So the data-driven decision-making took off once people started not being right with everything they were doing. And I feel like we're in that spot right now where it's all high fives and chest bumps. And soon people are going to realize, hey, you've got only a limited number of bets and you better be right. So our business becomes very powerful there. So right now, if you look at Qualtrics, we've transitioned to the enterprise. We have 8,000 brands on Qualtrics. We power the feedback for all of healthcare.gov. Customer experience is a big piece of what we do, plus general research. So it's pretty cool. It's evolved in a slow, long, 12-year overnight success. And how many employees worldwide today? We have 1,000 employees worldwide, and we had 500 last year. Okay, so doubled. And of those, how many are in greater Utah? We have probably about half, a little bit more than half. An interesting thing from the story, these are the best of times, aren't they? At least in our careers. Since you've got a, right? If you've got a pulse, you've got money, right? Hasn't been better. But folks like you and I have been through 08 and 09. And one of the interesting lessons was anyone that pulled back in 08, 09 that had something actually made a mistake for all different reasons. And so how do you think about that today? At some point, NASDAQ cannot go up infinitely high. If folks are worried, if they're worried they sell only into technology, if they're worried that they have a nice to have and not a solution, is this something, if you have enough cash runway, you should even worry about? So I think that's the protection nowadays that you yeah. didn't have in 08 or 09. Someone could feel like, hey, they're just figuring it out. We have this model that's like nail it, then scale it. We want to nail something and then scaling is easy if you know where it's going but a lot of companies are trying to figure that out I'll build the car as they go which makes yeah. it really tough but if you have a long enough runway the thought is if you're a bright enough entrepreneur you're gonna figure it out and I tend to agree with that to some point but if you could have it the other way which is how I prefer to have it where you have a long enough runway and you figured it out then it gets really fun so in 08 09 where all of our competition mind you I was looking up in 03 five and, and competitors who had all merged together. They raised $30 million. I'm sitting in a basement. They're selling a cheaper product than me that's better. Yep. So that was tough, right? <laughs> I was like, damn, that's going to be a hard one to overcome. <laughs> but we just did it. And nothing was better when that company fire sold a couple years ago for 70 million bucks yep. <laughs> to see them in the rearview mirror. But the best part of it was when the downturn happened, everyone retreated everyone and we yeah. went to heavy hiring and development mode because our model was sound and we came out of 2010 five years ahead. Yeah. 
And so I think that's the part of these cycles that people understand. You just don't want to be affected. So like when we do our growth, if you look at, we hired 500 people in one year, we had 180 people last quarter, and these aren't $12 an hour employees. It's the same talent war that you're all in, and we were cash flow positive last quarter. Yeah. For every quarter in the history of calls, we've been cash flow positive. So I think there's something about that where it might take a little longer, but I want to be able to write my own story as an entrepreneur. I don't want anyone writing that for me. Yeah. And so for me, that's why I do what I do. If you talk to any of the senior folks at Salesforce that have been around for a few years, they'll tell you their biggest mistake was not investing enough in 0809. And Salesforce is a pretty good SaaS company. <laughs> it's yeah. number one. And, and it sounds like even in those days, you had structured Qualtrics such that cash is always stressful until it isn't, right? It inherently is, yeah. but you never had runway issues. It doesn't. You never worried you're going to run out of money in 14 months, at least when in those years. Because in SaaS, especially when you have a sales-driven model, it does consume a certain amount of cash. So any insights into runway and stress around that until now it doesn't matter. Your cash flow positive, and you've raised hundreds of millions of dollars. But you didn't even raise any money until when? Oh, 2010? Yeah, 2012. 2000, okay, that's a decade in. So Qualtrics is a story of two models. So yeah. mind you, my father wouldn't let me raise capital. So I said, hey, the only chance I'm ever going to take a dime out of this company is to be extremely profitable. Yes. So at the time we raised money, we had, I think, $48 million in sales, kicking off $30 million in cash. Kicking off $30 million in cash. With no outside funding. Wow. And then I was sitting there one day going, hey, wait a minute, we're on to something. Yeah. And I would like clear out the checking account every month. I was paying people like a million dollars a month to stay away. And we were sitting there going, wait a minute, this is a multi-billion dollar platform we're working on. Yeah. What if we took all of that money and put it back in? Yeah. And I know that sounds duh, but <laughs> when you're taking home that much money, like, that's not how you think. And so... Then it became, well, how do we do this in a responsible way, but still maintain that scrappy bootstrap culture that we grew up with? So that's been the challenge now is we are accelerating as fast as we can. The interesting thing is so is everyone else in the world, but I don't think we're doing it in a way that we're going to have to stop. There's a lot of things I want to talk about, but you raised a really interesting point, especially the last couple of years I work with more companies. So back then you had a $48 million run rate and you were dropping $30 million to the bottom line. So what are your Zen thoughts on capital efficiency in SaaS? We look at Box, and I think Box is an amazing company with an amazing CEO in the most competitive space in the world with really tough unit economics. And we've just heard really an amazing set of metrics. What's the difference between you and Box? Or Salesforce is in the middle. Salesforce is generating free cash flow, but never quite at the numbers that you did. And it's not as simple as the fact that your product isn't any higher margin, gross margin than those. What's your Zen learnings on capital efficiency? I think Box is doing a great job for what they're doing. I used to always say, hey, Aaron, I wish I was picking a fight against someone who was like one of these big players. It'd be so much fun. That was how we grew up. But now it's we're in uncharted territory in our space and a lot of people are trying to pick a fight with me. But he's not gonna tiptoe into the market he's in. He's not gonna tiptoe in and all of a sudden, like, strategically get in there and say, oh, Microsoft, hey. No, he's yeah. got to come in there full frontal. So in that market, I think he's doing exactly what he should be doing. Yeah, agree. In markets where you're creating a market or you're doing something that might not have as long of a leash, that's what you got to do. If you've got one where you can create something, I think you've got a little more chance. But I think they're doing a great job. And I've actually looked at their enterprise model, and I think that's exactly how I would go about it. So one factor, and these are the things I've tried to learn and think about. One factor is creating the market. It's harder. And very few it, right? people are right. Really I, hard. I was, I've been pounding our market and everything we're doing since 2004. Yeah. And the, now people are finally starting to go, oh, yeah, oh, I see what you're talking about. And so the advantage I can see to creating a market is that there's less competition. In this segment of the market, if you create a market, it's minute 
it's tiny. And so when I think about capital efficiency, a second factor I look at is the actual competitive, like deal by deal, not theoretical competitors, but deal by deal. And so and competition is something we all we obsess about as founders, yeah. and some, sometimes to our detriment. Tell us about competition, how it's changed, and how that impacted your growth up until your 30 million in free cash flow, and then these last few years as you've exploded. So when you're bootstrapped, you can't really look at the competition and copy what they're doing, or you're gonna you're already dead. And so I think the best thing that we've done by trying to maintain that culture is if I look at Qualtrics, it's a series of six startups. And I think that if I was looking to go join a company or I was looking to invest in a company, everything would be about innovation. And does this company have the ability to innovate for the second and the third and the fourth act? Yes. Because you might get super lucky where your first act is a huge market, but every company I see, now that they're public or they've grown and they're big, they could even be a $30 billion market cap. They're saying, what's next? And reality is it's hard to innovate. And it takes a long time and it takes a lot longer than you thought. So I think as, at Qualtrics, we're really, historically, we've been pretty good at innovating because we didn't have another option. And so my big proponent for scarcity and to bootstrap for most of these startups is you're going to need that muscle memory and scar tissue down the road. And if you don't have it, it's like cramming for a marathon. You're only going to get to mile mark seven. Yep. Before you just fall over. Now, you did start in 02, which was the crappiest of all time of the internet. Luckily, you were a junior in college, so you didn't know any better. How do you vary that advice in 2015 when you come out of Y Combinator at 22 and you can be doing 10 million in revenue within 18 months? Does it change that advice you give on that discipline of that efficiency? Because you were lucky you had years to do it in the depths between 1.0 and 2.0. Yeah. I think it really depends on the space. Back to the box example versus us. There's really, go back to that nail it then scale it principle, right? It's if you're trying to scale something you haven't nailed, then that doesn't work. But if you've got a model that you have nailed and you're going after a land grab and you've got to acquire that market share, go. If it works, so like in the academic market, once we got to 250 schools, it was probably well-baked at about 40. But I'll give you another great example. When our investors first came in 2012, I didn't want to go and, once again, I was trying to be super profitable, so I didn't want to go over to Europe. So I had a team coming in at night selling into Europe. Oh, yeah. right? 2012. In 2012. After you raised nine figures of capital, well, you don't it was right about that. Time. Yeah, they, they, they were trying to get me to go over, and it was like this huge battle. I didn't want to go over. But you did it too late, didn't you? Well, no, I didn't do no? it. But they were doing about 400000 a quarter over the phone. Yeah. I was like, this model's beautiful. It's, I mean, and then it's like, no, we need $3 million, and we've got to go place that bet <laughs> and open up our Dublin office. And now we have 100 employees in Dublin. Yeah. And it, it's the right move, but it's definitely a different model. And the one thing I see nowadays is the model that got you here is not going to be the model that gets you to the next place. Yeah. And you've got to get really comfortable tearing that down. You've got to get very comfortable reinventing that model. I'll give you a great example on the sales side and then go to market because I'm pretty passionate about this. My head of sales was coming out to Dreamforce. He had 400 emails in his inbox of someone trying to sell him something. So that didn't happen in 2009, and especially not in 2006. There weren't that many planes on the tarmac when there you showed eight. up. Yeah, there were like eight emails and you can get it as Right now, it's just, it's chaos. And what are you gonna do for the future to differentiate yourself? is a company. Yeah. And so that's the part that people haven't thought through. Everyone's got a bunch of engineers that are super smart and a bunch of money. We can all build anything. Any software can be built. Anyone right? can build anything, especially including, if I've got a model to look at, right? Including at Microsoft, Adobe, any yeah. big company. They have good well, engineers Microsoft's everywhere, right? Excuse. They had a lot of money and super smart people. Everything's yeah. going to be coming around go-to-market. 
So you cannot just be a good product company anymore. You have to be a good product company and an amazing go-to-market company. And yeah. together, you have a chance to go do something big. Yeah. And people don't spend enough time on that side. Yeah, let's go back and touch on some things that I find pretty interesting. Let's talk about the viral coefficient in B2B and SaaS. So you talked about you start a university, and then you have some students, and then they go off, and they bring it to another university. I calculated our viral coefficient of SaaS at about eight months. It took about eight months for that process to yield another paying customer. How, do you calculate that? How do you think? Because we get impatient. Yeah. This isn't Instagram. It takes yeah, yeah, time. Yeah. So how does that virality work? How do you think about it? First right? of all, I think if you think about, this is interesting because I actually think the go-to market in the enterprise is totally changing. The way we buy is changing. Yeah. So I'll give you a great example. If someone wanted to sell Tableau into Qualtrics and our head of Inge was like, no, we don't want more BI products. We're not doing that. And so our head of sales bought a $10,000 Tableau license. And then our head of finance bought a $10,000 Tableau license. And our head of marketing bought a $10,000 Tableau license. And I just bought a $300,000 Tableau license. <laughs> so the way we buy, it's this try before you buy. I don't remember the last time even a company in our situation just came in and bought a $400,000 license or something like that. So I think if you look at the Tableau, if you look at the Elastin, if you look at the Slack models on the way they're, they're going into the enterprise, it's very different than the historic enterprise sales rep with United Platinum Miles showing up to your office. It doesn't work anymore. Yeah. And actually, it's the opposite of that, where I have a friend who's the CEO of one of these companies, and he's like, hey, Ryan, we're evaluating Qualtrics. And I was like, what's there to evaluate? We're buddies. I'll give you a great deal. Let's close it. No, nope, my team's got to do a bake-off. I'm like, come on, man. Like, and he's like, can you just have your team jump on our product? And it's like, no. If Benioff calls me and says, Ryan, I want you guys on Salesforce, and my head of sales doesn't want to use Salesforce? Like, look, he's got his KPIs, his OKRs, and whatever he's shooting for, and I don't care how he gets there. Just get there. Yep. And if I'm telling him what software to use, and that's what's going on now. And that's actually what happened in academia. Yeah. So we started with these really prominent faculty members who actually drove the business decisions for all of the university. And I want to talk about silos and try before you buy it. To me, it's more that the functional heads are making the buying decision. That sometimes is the same as a silo. You could still buy a million dollars worth of Qualtrics right off the bat. You, yeah, must, uh, you have customers that have bought 100%, all. 100%. Right? But we're competing in some of these enterprise spaces, and there's, oh, there's 300 RFPs going on in this enterprise space. We show up, there's five other companies bidding there. The customer doesn't know. The win-loss ratio is all over the place. Yeah. But what they don't realize is there was 4,000 RFPs that they never got invited to because it was our people who were already in there upselling throughout the process. Yeah. So they never even got a call on them. One thing I worry is when we give binary Atlassian Slack advice, right? Because <laughs> everyone would love to build a product like Atlassian without a, re quote, real sales team, which is there, but not real. Or Slack, which truly up to at least 20-something million has no traditional sales team. But that's not quite the same as silos that expand. And more importantly, I'm not even sure that Qualtrics is totally binary, right? So you've got, you do these C-level sales, right? Where you go in and in the beginning you will bring down a six figure, even seven figure deals. And then you do the Tableau type deals that are smaller, I think, mm -hmm. and then close more of the company later. So is it really so binary? Is it no, no. I think we've got a great product. Yeah. So we're very comfortable having one department use our product and then they start gathering data and getting insights and they're like, whoa, this is easy. Let's use yeah. it for event feedback. Oh, great, this is awesome. Let's use it for our customer SAT survey. Great, this is awesome. Let's use it for HR. Like, and it spreads that way. 
If you don't have a viral product or a product that you think people won't tell other people about, yeah. then yeah, you better go slay the dragon once and lock them up in a three-year deal because that's your only chance. But when the companies aren't ready to do that, yeah. it's a lot better to drop something off there and move on to the next and work on how to navigate and let that grow. And the other part of this is some of these companies and this is where founders don't think about a lot, where are you going to get your wallet share from? In the box situation, what was the budgets five years ago for file sharing? Zero, but ECM is real. So it's there. Yeah, but, but it has to be from ECM. But every budget. company can't have, we're gonna go create a bunch of discretionary spending. In our world, you can't raise your hand and say, hey, I'm on the consumer side, I'm going to the enterprise. You actually have to rip something out, change the old way of doing it, yes. or come in and wrap it all together. Discretionary small. Discretionary small. Exists, the budget's right? there, yeah. but who are we ripping and replacing? Most what's the of, case with Qualtrics? What did you learn about that? Where, so, did you come, what bucket did you come out of? Yeah, so when we first started, we're like, hey, you can do more for less. This yeah. was the 2009, 2010. Your budget's just got cut. You can't outsource to this 30 billion market research industry. So do more for less there. So you came out of this CMO's outsourced research budget? Is which that is a huge, yeah, which is it's a big, It's a big piece. Okay, that's yeah. where you came from. And then you go in and now we're ripping out success factors and companies like that on the 360 review side. Yeah. And then on the customer experience side, it's a really hot area and people are doing this for the first time and they're replacing call centers and all sorts of different programs. And then they're doing it all together on one enterprise platform. Yeah. So instead of three different products and a bunch of consultants, we're saying you guys own all the data, it's all here, and for the first time ever, you've got this insight platform that is going to be as equally as important as a CRM tool or an HRM tool like Workday. And it connects with the whole org instead of just like HR, just sales. The success of Qualtrics is for me to show that to the world. The wallet share, it's such an, a misunderstood topic by founders. And when I was acquired and I was a VP at Adobe, we had a huge budget for our department, which is these web services. My discretionary budget was 500,000 a year. So if you wanted to sell me something, first you had to get my attention as a VP, yeah. but all the stuff that I was gonna buy discretionary, it had to fit into five, and so it exists. But if you wanna go do something big, you have to match into a category, right? Into a bucket and probably rip somebody out ultimately, right? 100%. Or play with a changing budget, like a, a, you know, reallocation of the CMO's money, or re but you're still ripping something out even if it's human, some sort of human capital, so. Yeah, and I think founders and, and tech folks sometimes think that all right, I've got this great product, I've got a bunch of users, I'm gonna go into the enterprise, some head of sales is gonna come in and take me through there, and this person on this white horse is just gonna go get all of this, and yeah. it doesn't work that way. If anyone's starting a company, or they're starting to get into some of these problems, if you can't sell this yourself, probably no one else is going to be able to. If I can't walk in and grab your budget as a CEO, even if I'm not technical or salesy, that's not an excuse because no one else is gonna be able to do that and you can't understand the value prop. Yeah. And if you are in front of the customer with that budget, you're gonna look at it and say, oh, wait a minute, I can't get that budget, but if our product changes a little bit, there's nothing better from an R&D standpoint or a product development standpoint than having those conversations. And everyone says, our customers want this, that's how we drive product development from customer requests. And for me, that's 50% of it. The other 50% is, will they request it? and write me a $100,000 check. When you look back in the early days, how good a salesperson were you? I got us out of the basement. Because my point is, I think 95 times out of 100 with SaaS founders, we have to learn how to sell. Like, we're bad at it, 
and, and maybe we're good at elephants or maybe we're good at yeah. schmoozing. We're, we're typically good middlers. Yeah. Like we don't know how to totally open and we definitely don't know how to nat or close in 60 seconds, but at least we're decent middlers, right? Yeah. I remember being in Dallas, Texas and operating out of the basement and closing Sabre and Travelocity for $75,000. And it was like, go home. Like I took two weeks off. I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm going to make 30 grand. My dad's going to we'll put five in the pot. And I just remember sitting in the airport going, do they know that I... First of all, I'm really young. Yeah. Second, that I'm in a basement. And but let's talk about that for just a minute. Because this is um, another thing founders get wrong. I think the customers know. And I think what they know is they're making a bet on innovation and they're making a bet that this is a seven year journey, yeah. or, but not a seven week journey. And that you have something special and they'll t I think they know the risk. And I think if you try and hide that, uh, I'm sure you tried to hide it a little bit because you hadn't even graduated if you ever graduated. But Yeah, it got me really confident, though. So our next yeah. project was with, like, the Federal Reserve. And so we went out to these Army bases, and we were doing all these projects. And they're like, Mr. Smith, what's your hourly rate? <laughs> That's nine grand a day. Nine grand a day? That's expensive. I'm an expensive person. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we closed the deal, and they paid me nine grand a day. And that gave me enough fuel to, hey, I'm worth $9,000 a day. Like, yeah. we can go, I'm on my way. Yeah. So one bit of advice I give to founders like in their first 18 months or so that are doing the enterprise is I ask them what their biggest deal is, 10K, 20K, and I go, go ask the customer for twice as much. How did you challenge yourself to ask for 75K or 150K? How did you learn yeah. to do that? Look, I think we're smart business people and I think we're yeah. good entrepreneurs, but if you would have told me in 2002 that what I was working on would be at like the forefront of decision making today, like <laughs> no one would have, we're, we're pretty lucky and we're pretty fortunate. I think that's what people don't also don't understand is everyone comes up, I did this. I, this thing could have gone sideways 15 different times. Yeah. And for whatever reason, and that's kind of what now where we have all this optionality in front of us. What do you want to do? You want to go public? Do you want to do all these things? It's okay. Why are we here? How many families are we going to help? How many jobs are we going to create? Like how are we changing the world? And part of it goes back to, I did ask for that double amount and someone paid us. They saw that young kid, you're probably right, saying, hey, this guy needs a bone. And that happened all the time to make payroll. And so I just think we're super fortunate to be in the spot So you've reinvented yourself five or six times, you said, different phases, as I guess we all do as we scale. Looking back over these phases over the last 13 years, were there key hires, whether they're right-hand people or like almost an ex post facto co-founder, who made the company at different, because there's a lot of time, yeah, right? Yeah. Just give us some titles or some anecdotes that move the needle. The hardest sell that I ever had to make is my father wouldn't let me take capital and my servers were falling over. And I'm not like... So this is 2003, so they're in the well, closet. No, yeah, they're in the right? closet. There's, there's no AWS. The power would go out <laughs> on the side of the house and shut us down for hours, and i answer the phone and make something up. Must be on your end. Hit refresh. DNS. Yeah, that was like a... That was a constant line. But in 2009, I was like, I got to take capital. I need to hire some real people to come help. And it was just going nowhere. So I finally said, okay, if I hired a venture capital firm or they partnered with me, what would they do? And they'd run out, they'd scour the market. And I fast forwarded through what they would do and who they would hire. And they would grab this great HBS head of product, whatever it was. Then I said, who do I know that I can maybe convince to come back and work with me. And yeah. I have this older brother who was running product at Google at the time. And he was running China and a huge percentage of the world's internet. And I called him up and I said, hey, you need to come back to Provo, Utah and work <laughs> with your younger brother and <laughs> leave Google, which was like- You said big, with or for? Which well, I mean, you, for, right? Or, and it took me two years, but I convinced my older brother to leave 
what he was doing and come work with me. And that was probably- to run product or what yeah, was his we'll just, role? I gave him, hey, we're founders, let's go, right? It's been yin and yang ever since. So he became like an ex post facto co-founder for you. Yeah, right? and he was, he was always an advisor to me, but that was a really tough sell. And yeah. if anyone knows Jared, he's probably one of the most amazing product people in the world. And when you two or three, there's only a handful of these people that exist. Yeah. And when they touch a product, they can turn it to a billion dollar product. You got it. And you saw that with Andy Rubin, Android, and all of that. Jared's one of those people. So it took you two years to, to recruit him. He's even your brother, right? Yeah, 100%. So if you try and, and, I, do this and I threw everything right? out, I was like, you're gonna, you're the oldest sibling. Like, <laughs> you've got a whole nation that you're supporting. This is your moral and family obligation. And, and it worked. And it's been hard. The first year was crazy hard because we're exact opposites. <laughs> people can't even believe we're from the same bloodline. Yeah. But it's actually been one of like, the joys of my life. If you could do this and you could be wildly successful, wouldn't it be cool to be able to do it with your brother? And I want to make sure we, because we're probably almost out of time, I want to get one other story. But what does he run today? Do you guys split some stuff up or what's so right his... now he's running Inge. Products he's running Inge. Inge. Okay. Yeah. So, so he's managing so that's what he is, a third of the company. He runs right? a third of the company, but then we split and work tandemly on, on different things. And we play to each other's strengths, but we're more thought partners. And that's, that's what you all want out of your VCs as well and your investors is thought partners are really hard and really rare. You don't get extra points for going alone. I think people don't realize that enough. So if there are thought partners that could really work with you, Jason, look at all your knowledge. Like you would be so valuable to someone like me five years ago, or even yep. now who has gone through that. And if you see eye to eye, hold on to those people because they're the ones that you're going to call. And so Jared, more than anything, he's like that blanket that I've had since I was a little kid. And we've got good mojo together. Yeah. And you don't want to run that. And I love that it took you two years to convince them, but it took them seven years yeah, I don't think it's ever too late for what I call this ex post facto co-founder. And it changes. Now you've got to think about how to get to a billion in revenue. You may need another guy like this. <laughs> never say never. You may need your... You would have told me in 2011 I would have raised money. In yeah. 2012, I would have said, you're crazy. You're crazy. And yeah. I thought that was our only round we'd ever raise. So we're never doing this again. But times got even better. <laughs> a year later. <laughs> so I just stopped. I just stopped saying we won't. One other... Game-changing hire that you made after your brother? Kind so of actually, before my brother, I had a college roommate named Stuart Orgel who bet on doing this with me. It was just me and my dad, and Stuart joined us. And Stuart was, he worked for $8,000. He turned out a $60,000 job offer to work for $8,000. And the next year, he made twelve. That's He's, an odd negotiation. Yeah, yeah. I can't afford nine, yeah, yeah, but I can yeah. so, 600 bucks a month. And, and <laughs> Stu is the most charismatic, like happy person to be around in the world and always positive. And I think is if you look at partners, and Stu's been my partner, and he's still a founder, and is on our board, and I think people look for who's the partner you want when things are going well, but Stu's the partner you want when the ship's sinking. And it was yeah. sinking a lot of times, and Stu was right there just to Middle, kind of pick it up. 10 p.m., you could sit yeah, together in the room without anybody and, else, right? And and when I'm like this, it, he right? was just like steady Eddie, like we're going to go kill it. And sometimes that's all you need. You need yeah. someone in there that's just got your back. And so Stu's been that. And there's so many people along the way that have done that. And there's so many people that will continue to do it. Yeah. And so my job as CEO is to find those people that fit that DNA and remove the roadblocks that's going to be in front of them to help take Qualtrics to what it's going to be. We hit so many interesting things. But when you talk about the team, I want to make sure we at least hit one thing you and I chat about on the phone. 
which is recruiting SaaS management outside of this glamorous Bay Area we're in. <laughs> and you told me, because I work with companies from all around the world, and I, I do think it's a challenge outside of the Bay Area. You can get kids anywhere. And what you told me is you relocated a lot of people to Utah. And I, it was hard enough to get your brother to come from Mountain View to Utah. So I think you agreed with me that it's hard. And the way you solved it was relocations. Just a minute or two insights on VPs if you're not in this sort of echo chamber of Silicon Valley. Yeah, so the benefit of Silicon Valley is success breeds success. So you start with HP and so on, and you go all the way back. And we're always looking for the right DNA that's been created. And in Utah, it's such a young area where you got WordPerfect and Omniture and Adobe. Yeah. But outside of that, there hasn't been a lot of success to breed success. And right, and arguably, some of the DNA in there might not always be good. It's dated. Yeah. And so what's exciting about Utah right now is there's probably six companies worth over a billion dollars. There's three of them on our street. And 10 years down the road, it's going to be phenomenal. They'll yeah. try and rip your whole team out. So one of the things we're doing is we're going around and we're saying, okay, where do we need those folks? Yeah. And then what percent of the workforce can we grow our own? We're in Utah, and so we believe in growing a lot of the talent. Yeah. But we need coaches. That's a real interesting pitch when you've got someone like yourself who's been around the SaaS world and say, hey, look, I've got 150 kids or young kids that we're growing between this age and this age, and this is where they're at in their career. You want to come coach? Yeah. That's a very different pitch than, hey, look, I need you to come out and manage a bunch of people. They're going to be a pain in the ass. Like, these people want someone to manage them. They want help. They're looking for direction. They're not these millennials that are just taking a tour two-year tour of every yeah. single company like we see Or a 366-day tour. Yeah, yeah, 366-day <laughs> tour. And, oh, I want to acquire some Uber stock and this stock and it's diversifying my portfolio. But then you look out here and you've got all these people that have that experience. So yeah. every market we go into from Seattle to Utah to Dublin to Sydney has something in the talent base that's special. And I think this fragmented work environment where you've got multiple office, you can't scale anymore without it. Yeah. And as much as no one likes it, we were 18 months ago, we were just in Provo, Utah, and now we have six offices. And we've got engineering up in Seattle. We just opened up another sales center in Dallas. We've got DC. We've got Dublin. And everyone has something different. And then we take the puzzle pieces that they don't have and augment for that. And I think that's the new strategy. But I think what we're seeing is no one has the exclusive on smart people. All right, Ron, this was epic. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Traction Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. And you can find more information and all the resources mentioned in today's episode at boast.ai. That's B-O-A-S-T dot A-I forward slash blog.